Now, the top of the hour on the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn presents the Green News Report. Climate is changing faster than any time in human history. It is not about saving the planet. It is about saving us, us humans and many of the other living things that share this planet with us. U.S. is warming faster than the rest of the globe and every region is affected, Major Report warns. U.S. and China agree to work together to displace fossil fuels and tackle the climate crisis. Plus, along with this assessment, I'm announcing $6 billion in new investments to make communities across the country more resilient to climate change. Biden administration releases new funding to strengthen climate resilience across the nation. All of those stories and more straight ahead from Brandblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. There are a number of my colleagues on the other side of the aisle who still deny climate change. Is all of them a number? This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen. Wow. Uh, A bunch of climate reports this week. None of them very happy. No, no, unfortunately, they are not. A handful of major climate reports dropped this week in advance of the next round of Paris climate agreement negotiations at the end of the month. Together, the reports underscore that the world is far off track from meeting targets to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions from burning fossil fuels that are driving the human-caused climate crisis. The first report from the United Nations warns that national climate plans still remain insufficient to limit the global temperature rise to the 1.5 degrees Celsius aspirational target in the Paris Climate Agreement. Global emissions are predicted to drop just 2% below 2019 levels by 2030, not the 43% reduction needed to avoid the worst impacts of climate change. A different report finds that climate warming gases in the atmosphere reached record highs in 2022. But the biggest of all was the Biden administration's release of the fifth national climate assessment compiled by several federal agencies. It's an exhaustive survey of climate impacts and risks in every corner of the United States. It describes how intensifying climate change is already here already disrupting lives, the economy, and vital ecosystems, and is, quote, worsening across every region of the United States. And worse in the United States than it is pretty much everywhere else across the globe. Yes, overall, the U.S. is warming 60 percent faster than the rest of the world. And the report delves deep with an interactive atlas to zoom down to every county in the nation. No place in the U.S. is safe from climate change, extreme heat, precipitation, and flooding events are all increasing in every region, impacting water supplies, crops, local economies, and more. The rate of sea level rise is accelerating. Back-to-back climate disasters are straining communities and ecosystems and hampering economic growth. Extreme climate events now cost the U.S. on average $150 billion a year. Other than that, how was the play, Mrs. Lincoln? 
But the National Climate Assessment also offers hope. It shows how communities in every state are ramping up their response to the climate crisis. And it details a broad array of tools, solutions, and transformational adaptation policies to cut emissions and harden infrastructure for resilience against climate impacts we can no longer avoid. Here's Dr. Leah Stokes, climate policy expert at UC Berkeley on CNN. We have the technologies we need. And so all we have to do is deploy them very quickly so that we can get off fossil fuels as fast as possible. Oh, that's all we have to do. Also this week, the U.S. and China, the world's two biggest greenhouse gas emitters, agreed at a meeting in California to work together to tackle global warming by ramping up renewable energy and displacing fossil fuels. It is the first time that China agreed to set its own targets to cut all of its climate warming emissions, including the powerful greenhouse gas methane. Finally, this week, President Biden released another $6 billion in new investment from the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law and the Inflation Reduction Act to help communities increase their resilience to climate impacts, modernizing the electric grid, upgrading flood controls and drought response, addressing environmental justice for frontline communities, and much more. It takes time for the investments we're making to be fully materialized, but we just have to keep at it. We need to do more and move faster. We have the tools to do it. In this administration, America will be the place where great science changes what's possible. It better change it quickly. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. We are off for the Thanksgiving week. Our great thanks to all of you for sticking with us over the past year. And to those of you who help us stay on your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. From both of us to all of you, please have a healthy, happy, and safe holiday. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Thank you for being a friend. Travel down the road and back again. Your heart is... Please help progressive voices support the Green News Report by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. From Interfaith Alliance, this is the State of Belief. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch in New York City. I become frustrated about what I can do as an elected leader in a city that has now witnessed the worst anti-Semitic attack in American history. It's not just about anti-Semitism. It was an attack on America. Its foundation is hate. White supremacy, white nationalism, and racism are national security threats. Not in Our Town is a filmmaking project that's been going strong for 25 years, bringing stories of hope, resilience, and resistance to communities across the country. On this week's show, I'll talk with Patrice O'Neill, who leads the project at the Working Group, And we'll be joined by anti-hate activist Pardeep Singh Kaleka, who has a deep personal connection to the story told in the Not In Our Town documentary, Waking in Oak Creek. I'll also talk with social impact media strategist Mario Carter French about the enduring power of film for storytelling and connecting people and for learning about religious diversity. We are growing the state of belief building on our 17-year history by partnering with Religion News Service. And as part of the RNS family of podcasts, 
there's a next generation, the State of Belief podcast I want to make sure you're subscribed to. Please visit stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. It would really help to have you subscribe and to tell people you're close to about the conversations you are hearing. The State of Belief is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation, thank you for helping get these conversations heard by more people who need them. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join us at interfaithalliance.org. And now to my first guest. Patrice O'Neill is a filmmaker, CEO of the nonprofit strategic media company, The Working Group, and founder and co-director of Not In Our Town, a movement of people across the country working to build safe, inclusive communities for all. And that's been going strong for 25 years. Pardeep Singh Kaleka is the son of Satwant Singh Kaleka, the leader of the Oak Creek Gudwara who was murdered along with five others at the Sikh temple in 2012. Pardeep is the author of Gifts of Our Wounds and a tireless anti-hate and interfaith leader. The tragedy of Oak Creek and its aftermath are examined in the 2013 Not In Our Town documentary film Waking in Oak Creek. Both of these leaders have been on the State of Belief before, and it is great to have you here together today. Welcome to the State of Belief. Thank you so much, Reverend Paul. It's great to be out with you all. So, Patrice, what is Not in Our Town? Not in Our Town is the name of a film that we did that aired on PBS in 1995. It was a story of people in Billings, Montana, standing up to hate crimes when white supremacists were organizing in their town. Um, That story has driven our work for many years. Uh, Back in the 90s, white supremacists were laying claim to the Northwest of the United States as their homeland. And so there were a whole series of attacks by white supremacists occurring in Billings, Montana. And the police chief at the time said, this isn't just a law enforcement problem, this is a community problem. What could we do together? So. A black church had skinheads show up at the service and intimidate this very small congregation. So members of other denominations were there to support them and the skinheads went away. Then a Native American woman's house was plastered with racist graffiti and 30 members of the painters union decided to go and and paint it over. A hundred neighbors were there to watch. So people in the town started learning what they could do themselves to stand up. The culminating event took place when a six-year-old Jewish boy placed a menorah in his window for Hanukkah. A brick was thrown through the window and it landed on his bed and people knew that things were becoming more dangerous. What can we do? And they said, they can't possibly attack every Jewish home if we're all Jewish. So let's all put menorahs in their windows. And that year, 10,000 people put menorahs in their windows for Hanukkah. And the white racist organizing stopped. What is so amazing about Not In Our Town films, I have to say, is that you you pinpoint something horrific, like really the worst that could possibly happen. And you tell that story, but you don't stop there. You tell what happened after. Pardeep, you know, you know this firsthand uh, in what happened in Oak Creek 
uh, and talk to me a little bit about um, what it meant to have um, Patrice and to have the opportunity to tell the story of the horror and then also the aftermath of the horror. Thank you so much, Paul. And yeah, as Patrice described, not in our town and in our mission, it really is a calling of just galvanizing community together. And it's not enough to even say, you know, this is our organization and this is what we do and this is how we make films. But in the aftermath of 2012, when a white supremacist gunned, gunned down seven people, including my father, I think one of the things that we were really searching for was voice. And how can we speak up on behalf of our own community? And we appreciated so many communities from diff- diverse faiths who came together in the aftermath of that. The you know people made a choice that Sunday to not go home and to show up and be outside of a, a Gudwara. And we really felt the responsibility of even speaking up for those communities to say thank you. We will never forget this. In our lowest moment, um, you know, people showed up and that was their belief. That was what they what they knew how to do. And over the years, uh, not in our town and the films that are made are about restoring, restoring community, restoring faith, restoring belief, restoring hope. And you see it within every one of these stories. And it comes from a unique place of saying, you know, in our sort of media culture that we have, a lot of times we give a lot of voice to the people who cause the, cause the harm, right? The perpetrators, the people who are the aggressors over the dominant, what we see as dominance in culture, but not in our town, said, no, what we want to do is we want to restore the community that was impacted, the surrounding communities, and we want to empower that voice of people who came together and galvanized and said, not, this is not going to happen here, and we are not going to stand for it. So, uh, you know, 12 years later, we're still appreciative of what the, you know, the work that Not In Our Town does and the work that you all do of that state of belief. Well, I, I appreciate that. I, I really think that that's what you're talking about is amazing. And by telling these stories, both, you know, it, interesting kind of through line of telling stories is a way of creating empathy. Like for people who are do not understand what it's like to live as a sick American and what it's like to go through such a horrific attack, which is also... You know, there were other uh, sick Americans and other people attacked after 9-11 and, and, and really identified. And so telling that story is one part of the empathy story. And the other part of the empathy story is saying, oh, look what they look what the community did. Look at the look what the sick community did, but also what the community around them did. And it's a way to inspire us and prepare us and, 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 and to have our minds and our hearts and our spirits opened up to the opportunities of how we should be prepared to respond when terrible things hit. Because we're in a moment where, unfortunately, hate has not gone away. The things that you have described in Billings, Montana, in, uh, in Oak Creek, Wisconsin, and you've done other important films that I want to get to in Pittsburgh and others, that kind of hate has not gone away. In fact, right now we're seeing an epidemic, in fact, of hate across the country. You all have been part of organizing something called Unite Against Hate. 
Tell me what that is and what what you're trying to accomplish with this. I think, you know, you just completed a week of Unite Against Hate. What is that and how can people learn more about it? You know, our stories about what local communities can do to stand up to hate led us to United Against Hate Week. And um, this is now the, um, this week we just launched the sixth United Against Hate Week. And it started with white supremacists marching through the Bay Area city, San Francisco, Berkeley, Oakland. And in the city of Berkeley, the mayor and his chief of staff, Jack McCormick, were standing on the steps of city hall saying, what can we do? There's melee in our streets. These white supremacists are marching to the streets and there, there's violence in the streets. What can regular citizens do? So they started making these posters and they handed them out in the city. And then Oakland wanted them. And then 13 other cities asked for posters uh, that said, our town stands united against hate. And it was so inspiring, I think, for all of us who were who were so distraught about about these hate groups marching in our town to see there's resistance in every store, in so many windows in our town. So we brought these communities together and said, you did the posters, what do you wanna do next? And that's that. this was their brainchild. These cities came together and said, we wanna do a United Against Hate Week. And this mm. is the sixth. It's fantastic. And I think it, it points to the idea that if you can give people the tools to come together, to do something tangible, to show up in a way that will make a difference in the lives of those who have been harmed, but also to create a vision for a different kind of future. Pardeep, you are, you know, as Patrice mentioned, an exemplar in this. And I think many of us who have not gone through what you've gone through are kind of somewhat in awe. And we ask ourselves the question, could I do what he did? And I think what you what you offer us is is kind of like, not only can you, but you actually kind of, you know, if I can do it, I'm not like some sort of mythical creature out there. I'm a real person who had his own struggles. I mean, talk to us a little bit about how you understand your own story as something that people can really relate to, and then how you turn that into such an inspiring avenue for us to learn and to be inspired and to be encouraged and maybe even be more brave than we think we could be uh, in, in difficult moments. No, thank you for that question, Reverend Paul. And I think about, as you mentioned, tools. I also think about we got to combine the tools. We have to combine the tools with willpower. And part of that, part of that I, I fundamentally believe is near and dear to all of our faiths when we practice from that place of compassion and love. And as you said, empathy. And, and we have to have that strength going forward. We are facing incredible challenges. The world will continue to face incredible challenges. Um, I know that there's a lot of people who feel raw and torn and feel like sometimes the amount of pain that they are, that there's there that is happening in the world is unsurmountable. But I, I just encourage people to say, you know what, this is what you are meant for. This is when you need to lean into your faith. And this is a great, not that we would want suffering to happen to anyone, right? but this is a great opportunity for us to address things so that these challenges are addressed in our lifetime and don't need to be you know, something that our kids need to take on. And I think that was really the inspiration of 
why we were doing what we were doing was I saw the long faces of kids and generations who felt like white supremacy uh, hated them and that they should hate themselves. And so really took it out and said, you know what, if I don't do this work personally from a place of showing them that we can get further upstream, and that's what United Against Hate Week is about. 2017, we had a rally in Berkeley, and that was in response to white supremacists who were attacking. Fast forward to today, to 2023, we are building an entire infrastructure to be able to monitor, address, and get in front of hate before it happens. We are having the conversations that we probably should have had a very long time ago, and now nobody can hide from those conversations of what, how geopolitics affects you know, our everyday life, and that's okay. Yes, it's heavy. Yes, we care. Yes, we feel raw, but we all need to lead it to our fates and know that we have we have courage there. I so appreciate that. I wonder if you can talk a little bit, Patrice, about the uh, one of your more recent films, which is called Repairing the World, Stories from the Tree of Life. This is uh, the terrible story of the shooting that happened in the synagogue uh, in Pittsburgh, Talk to us about the experience of making that film and uh, what were some of the things that as you were going in as a filmmaker, you were just aware of um, that you were stepping into? Well, our stories are are not about the horror of hate. They're about what we can do about it. And Pardeep and I had been traveling around the country showing Waking Oak Creek and sparking discussions. And in the discussions of our films, people don't often talk about the town that it's about. So they weren't necessarily talking about Oak Creek. They were talking about their own experiences. What's happening in our town that we need to pay attention to, that this film reminds us we need to pay attention to. And we started hearing this, these multiple stories of anti-Semitism. Now we know that anti-Semitism has been around for thousands of years. This is not something new. And of course it had been there. It was, you know, part of the response in Billings, but this was different. This was a new feature. This is like 2015, 2016. And so as one of the journalists says in our film, when the deadliest anti-Semitic attack in U.S. history happened at the Tree of Life Synagogue in 2018, it was horrifying, but it wasn't surprising. You had seen this rising anti-Semitic conspiracy theories um, um, spread over social media, um, attacks on journalists, Jewish journalists. It was there, young people in, you know, doing the Sig Heil. It was, you know, horrific, you know, events on um, gaming and social media. So we immediately sent Shireen Zalas, my filmmaking par- partner, went immediately to Pittsburgh, not just because um, of the of the nature of the crime, but because we started to see this massive response in the city of Pittsburgh. It was like nothing we'd ever seen in a large city like this. And mm. um, when you see the the film, you you see it, you feel it. The interfaith the expression of interfaith support, hundreds of faith leaders on the stage just days after this attack, 
expressing solidarity to the Jewish community, sports teams, um, um, dedicating their games to the people who had whose lives had been lost, really massive show of support. Mm. And so it was yeah. that story that we wanted to tell. Yeah. You know, one thing I do, I do want to just ask you, uh, Pardeep, about your book and just the idea that the gift of our wounds is, I think, a conversation that, of between you and a white supremacist. And how do we, you know, because right now I'm in kind of fight mode. This is like an existential moment for our democracy. It's an existential moment for communities I love. And I find myself bawling my fist and I'm trying to f- be inspired to open my hand in a gesture of friendship. Pardeep, maybe you can help me along my path. No, thank you, Reverend. I think balling your fist is a good, healthy emotion. I think that we should be angry. We should be frustrated. We should be concerned. Some of the work that we're embarking on now, as we're getting ahead of hate, there is a political element to this. We do not want to lose the traction that we have made. And that causes us to recommit in the efforts that we've already started. And there's a real concern about not being able to see something through. With that said, uh, I created it. Yeah, so the book highlights a journey that I personally took with a uh, former white supremacist. His name is Arnold Michaelis. He started the same gang or organization that the shooter in our situation belonged to. And part of me also wanted to look at why do people get into hate? And how can we stop a person who maybe has joined a group like the Proud Boys or Oath Keepers or uh, even like so within the spectrum of, of just understanding hate, uh, some people can go too far and get extreme in their views. And what we wanted to do was like, Arnold and I wanted to get further upstream and say, okay, can we prevent the next one from doing it? And over the past 12 years, we've been able to, to do that with multiple individuals who would come to our talks and say, hey, uh, I was thinking about joining this group. Well, you know what, there's a better way to live your life. And that that part part of that we don't get to talk to about as much, but it, it really took us stepping back and saying, okay, like we need to reach everybody. If we're going to really prevent hate from happening, we have to reach law enforcement, we have to reach faith communities, civic organizations, but we also have to reach the perpetrators of violence. And maybe our society has become so rejectionist that even these people who we've believe are evil or bad or whatever we're throwing them away but not understanding that they're having the consequences of devastating families and because they're hurting right and what we say is that hurt people hurt other people mm-hmm. and in my own personal journey Arnold McKayla sometimes we look for people who will be the ones that like okay I'll go to this person for support because I know they're supportive but sometimes to heal ourselves Really, we need to go to a person that may challenge us. And that was who Arno was. He challenged a lot of stereotypes of even what I had around people who get involved in, you know, what people call the movement. But, uh, you know, today I just see him as a brother. Uh, he uh, babysits our kids. He uh, watches the kids. He knows, we know his family well. He knows our family well. We live about 15 miles from one another. Um, so we hang out quite a bit. And I think uh, the best testament to this is I, I called him one day and I said, this was about five years after the shooting. And I just said, thank you. 
He's like, thank, thank you for what? Let, thank you for raising your hand. Thank you for, you know, because a lot of times people will not raise their hand. They, they will say, you know what, I, I don't want to do, do that work because it's messy. It's ugly. I, I have a lot of guilt around my past. And, and I said, thank you for being a brother. And thank you for also being a therapist. Uh, you know, I, I'm, in mental, I'm in the mental health world. And I could say that he has done more for my sort of personal mental health journey than maybe anybody could have. But with that said as well, I have never, ever, ever forgotten all of the people from different communities, especially faith-based communities, who have shown up and continue to show up. You know, and, and I think that some, there's something that strikes us, at a, as, strikes us at our core when a synagogue gets attacked, when a gudwara gets attacked, when a church gets attacked, when a masjid gets attacked. Because what we know is we know that those places aren't just places. Those places are where people get buried, people cry, people lose their life, people grieve together, right? These are people, these are, these are communities that people gather together and want to drop all of the, all of the sort of like the armor that they have about the world and just find themselves closer to God. And for, for, for six, and I think this is for Muslims and Christians and Jews and every, all of us, you know, we're anchored to one God. We're all anchored to one God. We have different beliefs, which makes this, this unique. And why we're so rich is because of the diversity of faiths and experiences and faces and lifestyles. You know, it is said, and I think this is said in the Quran and deliberately said in the Quran and, and said in many Sikh uh, scriptures that our God was, he, he is strong enough to make us all look the same, all walk the same, talk the same, dress the same, eat the same, believe the same. We could have had sameness, right? But our God believed in our capacity and our will to say, listen, I'm going to make you diverse because your mission on this earth is to not just love the person that's like you, walks like you, talk, talks like you, agrees with you, right? Love the person who doesn't. That's your, that's your journey here. And that's, that's all of our journey. And we, we you know, not going to sugarcoat it. You know this. Uh, Patrice knows this. We all have, a, we have challenges ahead of us. And these are nothing less than spiritual challenges. But I do believe that if we are, if we are close to our faith and close to our sacredness, that we will, we will win these challenges. Mm. Preach. I love it. Thank you. How can people find out about Not In Our Town? Uh, is there a website that people can go to? Yes, niot.org, notinourtown.org. And you can find our films there. They're for free. You can use them in your classroom. You can use them in their community. You can show them after a service or, yeah. um, you know, in your town hall. So yeah, um, this is there a are, real resource. Yeah. And there are action kits. What can you do in your community to start a group that will, you know, raise awareness about the problem of hate, start bringing people together to say, who is being harmed in our community and what can we do together to make it a safer, more inclusive place for everyone? So you can find all of that in the about section on nayat.org. You can learn more about the film Repairing the World at repairingtheworldfilm.org. And you can learn more about United Against Hate Week at unitedagainsthateweek.org and, and what you can do. Uh, thank you so much. Not in Our Town is a movement to stop hate, racism, and bullying and build safe, inclusive communities for all. 
Patrice Pardeep, thank you for all that you do. And thank you so much for joining me this week on The State of Belief. Thank you, Reverend Paul. Up next, social impact media strategist Mario Cotterfresh. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of The State of Belief anytime on our website at stateofbelief.com. And make sure you subscribe to the Next Generation Podcast at stateofbelief.com slash newpodcast. That's stateofbelief.com slash newpodcast. You're listening to State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. State of Belief Radio, twice every weekend on the Progressive Voices Network. Nine one one. What's your emergency? America's healthcare system is broken, and people are dying. Welcome to Code Whack, where we shine a light on America's callous healthcare system, how it hurts us, and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Brenda Gazar. time on Code Whack. What can be done in light of Medicare Advantage overcharging taxpayers to the tune of $140 billion a year? Should we improve traditional Medicare or pursue Medicare for All as a solution? To find out, we spoke to Dr. Ed Weisbart, the National Board Secretary for Physicians for a National Health Program. If you live in Boise, Idaho, and uh, you have your Medicare there, but you spend four months in the winter in Florida, if you have regular Medicare, you can spend four months of the year in Florida and go to get any health care you need. If you have Medicare Advantage or any other insurance and you go to Florida, you wind up only being able to get emergency care paid for if you're lucky. Yeah, a one single payer based on Medicare, fix the things that are wrong with Medicare and give that to everybody in the country. And we would save money. The country would spend less on health care. We would stop having to, you know, every year rethink, well, do I want Blue Cross? Do I want Humana? Do I want Sigma? You know, we just, you know, stop that. <laughs> What's their one job? Their one job, the one thing they get, you know, the insurance companies get, is they're tasked with telling us which doctors and hospitals we can't use. <laughs> Who would do that? Who would set up a system like this? It's nuts. So, yeah, I think single-payer Medicare for all improved Medicare. Uh, in the ways we were talking about is, is really the right way to go. Get the full Code Wax story on ProgressiveVoices.com and on the PV app. Catch all our episodes by subscribing to Code Wack wherever you find your podcasts. This podcast is powered by Heal California, a nonprofit that uplifts the voices of those fighting for healthcare reform around the country. Until next time, stay healthy. Whether you're listening to Leslie Marshall each Tuesday through Friday or Brad Bannon each Monday, you can hear them from 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern on the Progressive Voices Network. Here's a sample of what you'll hear. Believe it or not, there are glimmers of hope and there are some positive things going on in our lives and I know that many of you don't feel that way, but we, especially as Americans, uh, compared to most of the world, are truly, truly blessed. Scott Paul, he's president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing, the AAM. Scott, welcome. You can fight opinions. You certainly can fight fiction, but you can't fight facts based on figures. Uh, and the U.S. Department, the Treasury Department released a report on the historically equitable economic recovery uh, from the pandemic. And this new report shows that President Biden's American Rescue Plan effectively delivered resources and aid to historically underserved communities, enabling economic recovery far more quickly than a previous turndowns. Can you speak to that a little bit? Because obviously you need recovery 
for the lights to be back on and the machines to be going at the manufacturing factories and plants throughout America. But I do think it's important for folks to understand, you know, particularly the dire straits we were in economically and how we emerged from that. And it's important for a couple of reasons. In the past, when we've had recessions, two things have happened. Usually, in the aftermath of that recession, inequality has widened. The rich, you know, bounce back faster and, and, and better, and the middle class gets a little hollowed out, and the, the poor fall behind. And that's true along, you know, racial demographic lines. Uh, and the other thing that usually happens um, is that manufacturing gets permanently smaller from a, from a jobs perspective. You know, now we have a wealth gap between whites, blacks, Latinos that is uh, still there, but it's shrinking. We have unemployment rates uh, that are um, almost at historic lows, depending on the month, for not only whites, but also black and, and uh, Hispanic workers, uh, which I think is important. Um, and we saw manufacturing bounce back and, in fact, has added jobs, added more jobs uh, th than, than we lost during the, the last recession. So all of this is, you know, wiping away 30 or 40 years of, of, of economic history. And it wasn't an accident. Again, that's Leslie Marshall every Tuesday through Friday and Brad Bannon every Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern on the Progressive Voices Network. You're listening to State of Belief Radio on the Progressive Voices Network. Welcome back to the State of Belief. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. My next guest is Mario Fresh, a pioneering social impact media strategist, storyteller, and creator. Mario worked for nearly 15 years at Viacom International as Senior Vice President of Public Affairs and Social Responsibility and is now a student at Harvard Divinity School and a Media and Entertainment Fellow in the Harvard Religion and Public Life, where he developed an organization dedicated to bringing religious literacy to Hollywood called DeeperDive.org. Mario, welcome to the State of Belief. Thank you very much, Paul. It's a pleasure to be here. And I know you're actually kind of towards the end of your first semester at Harvard Divinity. So thank you for spending some time with us. But you've had a whole career uh, and you've done so much cool work in media. And I love that you're bringing it to religious literacy and how we can understand religion more. But before we get there, talk a little bit about your background. Where did where where, where are you from and how did you get to this incredible career and now at Harvard? Sure. Um, I was born and raised in El Salvador. Um, I went to school in Georgetown University. And after graduation, um, I was oscillating between DC and Miami when I met in a very serendipitous way at a dinner, the then president of MTV, Antoinette Zell. And we strengthened a very deep conversation about how media is a catalyst for social impact and it's something that she wanted to do at the time. Uh, this is right around the year 2000. She felt that MTV was not just a brand, but it was a culture maker. And as such, she felt the responsibility of also not only entertaining, 
through music and entertaining TV shows that were at the time in their infancy stage, she thought that we could interweave social impact messaging. And I couldn't believe that actually somebody like MTV was interested in social impact. And she offered me the job. <laughs> she offered me the job to as first as a six month temp to help her write the roadmap on uh-huh. how you could achieve this. And once we finished writing it, she said, would you like to stay? And I said, I'll stay for six months and see how it goes. <laughs> and that became yeah. almost 20, actually 20 years. I worked wow. for 15 years as an employee. And then I've been working, producing MTV documentaries as a non-employee, as a, as a consultant since 2017. And right now I am in the midst of producing a mini series of short documentaries for MTV. It's just great. And some of these documentaries were, I just should mention, like they dealt with issues that were really important uh, for people who were kind of adhered to the MTV brand. Things like AIDS at the time, right? HIV yes. AIDS, so things we, like, yeah, we, yeah, go ahead. Correct. Yeah, we, we did HIV AIDS. Uh, we did topics that at the moment were very new to the general market and to youth as well. Uh, human trafficking was right after mm. HIV AIDS. It was a topic that nobody was even touching. And MTV was the first one, like HIV AIDS. Um, then we had the environment, we have recycling. Uh, teen pregnancy was, the percentages were so high in the US that MTV decided to co-produce a an entire TV show that became a brand, a franchise for many, many seasons called Teen Mom and 16 and pregnant and the research shows independent research research shows that in the areas where the tv show was consumed the most teen pregnancy percentages dropped so it was evident that the idea that this woman antoinette zell had back in 2000 was was not only a culture maker but it was an impact maker right right and What's interesting is that you also had a religious background. I mean, you kind of went through your own spiritual journey, right? I mean, you you yes. were raised in the Catholic Church, and then you kind of went through your own yeah. spiritual journey. But it's been a really important part of your life, obviously. Yes, I think that um, as many uh, Americans uh, in the U.S., in Europe and Latin America as well, we're seeking diverse forms of reaching greatness, God, enlightenment, uh, through some type of a spirituality. And I've always been a very curious person. Uh, I never quite left my religion. I just went into others <laughs> as an interloper to see how things worked somewhere else, while always safely keeping one foot where I belong. I married a Jew. Then uh, I was very interested in Kabbalah. Later, I became very interested in the practice of yoga, which I know it's a whole different conversation, but that led me into meditation, into Hinduist meditation, into Buddhism meditation. So eventually um, I created what I call my own a la carte religion. While continuing with the base of what I was raised, um, I have borrowed as as I feel I, I need to supplement or to make me into a 
more wholesome person. Yeah, and I think that actually a lot of us have gone through that. You know, have been on a search and then found things that are of value and things that you know we're not so interested in, and we create something. And but you know, it's part of that. I think is is really beginning to understand. Oh, I see. That's I can appreciate what this is for what it is, and you know. I, I'm wondering if that search didn't also help you kind of get to the place where you are now, where um, Absolutely. you see all of your background of like yes. incredible um, storytelling and, you know, documentary and impact, um, you know, yes. entertainment. And then, you know, beginning to imagine, like, how can that help me understand religious diversity and the fact Correct. that it, they can be different, but they don't have to be worse or better. You know, I mean, I think Correct. that's what I, I, I so talk to me a little bit about how you began to fuse those two sure. wonderful, wonderful uh, passions. So that curiosity of learning about other religions, which I was part of, I'm sure, millions of people, uh, led me to travel around the world and actually uh, experience these religions in 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 their in their own place. Uh, and, and I was able to understand um, what religions around the world looked like in the last um, 15, 20 years. That has been my travels to to learn about religions. And that gave me the curiosity to watch the TV that we were making, uh, the content that we were making, the content that everybody's making in Hollywood, that they're still representing those religions that I have just seen firsthand, so different from what I was looking at on television or in the films. And that curiosity led me to why are we still using these old stereotypes? How mm. come we, the media makers, the culture makers, have not um, come up to speed to be able to represent what the different religions look like today? And that brought me to what is known as the Religious Literacy Project at the Harvard Divinity School. I came here to take one course eight years ago, <laughs> and that curiosity became very curiosity, very very deep curiosity, and so I did take um, the program that is offered uh, in collaboration between the Divinity School and the Extension School for Professionals, and it's, it's a higher education certificate to learn about religion, and that's where I became informed about religious literacy. And with that information, I created the deeper dive. So just to clarify, it's not a project that I created for HDS. It's a project that was created by me while studying at HDS, informed by HDS. Uh -huh. um, and yes, I do hope that one day it becomes uh, a, a program, an official program of the school. Uh, but right now I am studying to learn more deeper, wider uh, about the subject matter and to understand why is it that we are still uh, lacking the correctness in religious uh, diversity on screen. And yeah. it's an ongoing study. It's a new study uh, that I feel I am the pioneer of that uh, I'm sure other people may have questioned it, but maybe because I am not an academic and I am a professional in the industry, and I'm kind of the first one from the industry 
coming to academia to try to understand why are we the professionals not doing a better job. And yeah. so I created this deeper dive project, which is um, it's uh, um, it's inspired by GLAD, the Gay Lesbian Association for Anti-Defamation, who has a very robust uh, training program for media executives that teaches them how to portray LGBTQAI plus correctly and currently as as these communities are living today, not as they were 10 years ago or 30 years ago or 50 years ago, like we're doing with religion. So the training that I've developed is in a similar fashion. Um, I was uh, consulted by GLAD. They were incredibly kind and giving, uh, sharing their knowledge in how to use their model uh, and take away LGBTQAI plus and put religious literacy, religious pluralism in it. And that's what the program is now. Yeah, this is so good. And I, I think that the other thing that, you know, you come at it from, you know, we want to make sure that religion is well um, uh, represented and, and appropriately represented and avoid stereotypes, but also it'll result in richer stories and, Absolutely. you know, and, 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 and better stories because I mean, the, you know, I, religions are the original storytellers. They tell stories about what matters, about what happened. This is, this is the heart of storytelling is the, you know, the religious effort to, and to pass that down. And I think often, Absolutely. you know, right now we're in a moment, you know, of crisis. We see terrible anti-Semitism happen. We see rising anti-Muslim hate. We see all sorts of hate rising and people are just falling into this. Oh, well, I know what they're all about. And, and often where we find our stereotypes, unfortunately, is in the media. And, and you know, Correct. and and the the opportunity that I think you're offering through training, but then also just awareness, it just like it should be part of what you're thinking about. It doesn't have to be the Correct. only thing you're thinking about, but it should be part of what you're thinking about yes. as you're developing projects, as you're developing Absolutely. stories is how does religion fit into it and how does religion fit into it well in a way yeah. that the people who practice that religion will actually feel properly represented rather than, you know, two-dimensional. Correct. Yes, there, there are a couple of studies um, that started last year and are culminating this year about it. Uh, Viacom is the first company who is actually doing it. That's where I worked. Um, and it's called Reflecting Me, and they do that ongoing. It's probably every year or every two years. And they they take a pulse on the Viacom audience and how they feel reflected usually has been limited to race, gender, and sexuality. Uh, and this year they added religion to it. Mm. And I cannot wait to see what the results are going to be because I feel like they're going to prove my thesis that we're not reflecting them. We're not, right. we're not reflecting the different communities correctly. Um, there is another organization that just finished a similar study, and it's called Harris X. Um, they are going to publish that in January or February. I got a little taste of it, a little preview, and it was like, oh my goodness, this is a big teaser for me because this is the <laughs> data. This is the data that I need to go back to Hollywood because we in Hollywood 
we talk about ratings. We talk about the bottom line because if we have good ratings, uh, means or or good sales of the film, uh, it means we're going to have good sponsors, and it's all at the end of the day, it's good to have uh, a, a a content that makes money because you can make more content and you can create jobs and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. We know that hitting the bottom line is important, and like you said. Uh, the better we reflect the audiences, the more engaging the content is going to be with the audience and they're going to get better ratings. They're going to get more sales. Yeah. So all you Hollywood executives out there, you have, you're going to be hiring uh, Mario and deeper dive very soon. If you want good sales, you heard it first here on the state of belief. One thing that we need right now is empathy. And we need to like be able to put ourselves in someone else's shoes and to, to imagine ourselves as wherever other people are. And I think of film and video as some of the strongest ways, you know, as well as books, that we can step into another life and say, oh, okay, I had not seen that before, but now I'm seeing it. And um we are um, also talking to the folks in Not In Our Town who have done um, films about, you know, the shooting in Pittsburgh and, you know, the, the shooting at Oak Creek. And they are they are really trying to help people come along with empathy to other communities and stand with them as much as possible. And how do you see empathy playing in your efforts of religious literacy and understanding? There's an old saying somewhere that I picked it up that we are what we consume. And it's not just about food, but it's also about what we consume in books and in, on, on screens, correct? Um, the more nuance and the better representations we have on screen, the more educated the general audience will be about anything. So if you look today, what the diversity, equity, and inclusion in Hollywood has done for the LGBTQAI community, for women, for Blacks, and to a certain extent for Hispanics and Asians. We, the general market, we go out on the streets and we are more likely to have more empathy uh, less, and be more tolerant about meeting someone that is not from our immediate circle, whether it's a woman, whether it's a black, whether it's a gay, whatever it may be, that is what we are not. Um, I think today, if you ask a 30-year-old person to describe a gay person, the 30-year-old or younger may not even understand the question because what they are consuming on the screen is so there's so much nuance and variety and diversity on 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 sexuality that to them it's not the same issue for someone who is like our age over 50 uh that we had we were raised with certain images and and certain parameters of what people look like so the more varied and accurate it's not just diversity and equity and inclusion is accuracy to what it looks like today out there on the street. So even if you are trying to do diversity, equity, and inclusion of, let's say, women and blacks, 
uh, on TV, but you're not being nuanced, nuanced about, there's no nuance about it, or, you know, being diverse enough. Uh, we're consuming this. We're going to go out on the street and find women that look different and blacks that look different. And we're going to still be, let's say, um, feeling that they are other hmm. while the, while the, the, I think Hollywood is doing a great job to show the variety of, of today's women in the U S or today's blacks in the U S I think they're doing a great job. Hmm. And I think we have to do better around religion is the, is what is, is the punchline. Yeah. This the is so line, great. Yeah. Um, what is your, um, I, I like to ask, uh, you know, I, first of all, let me just say, everybody should go now to deeperdive.org, check it out and, and learn. And, um, even if you're not a, a media mogul, you can look at deeperdive.org and I guarantee you, because I've spent some time on the site, you're going to learn things and it's going to be really an enjoyable read. Um, I like to end the, the, you know, the, the program asking, um, everyone, what gives you hope? What, what do you see that gives you hope right now? Uh, what gives me hope, specifically to the work that I'm doing, is that I have tested this thesis uh, in Hollywood, in Miami, and in New York with top media executives. When I tell you top, top, top media executives, and also with the executives who are in the director and VP level that are managing the diversity, equity, and inclusion, and I want to almost say that 100%, but I'm sure it's 99 because there's 1% room for error. 99% of them are so supportive of the work that I'm doing because they feel that it's very needed. And at, at the same time, they see that nobody else is doing it. So mm -hmm. it gives me hope that Hollywood is very receptive and very willing to accept change and to accept more requirements for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And as you can only imagine that to a lot of people, that may be like, oh, here comes yet just one more movement that we got to deal with. But this is really the one movement we should have been dealing with from the beginning of the beginnings, because religion is the, well, not the only, but religion is the movement that touches all the movements. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Mario Cardiff-Fresh is a social impact media strategist, storyteller, and creator. For over 20 years, his groundbreaking original content has premiered globally on MTV, Nickelodeon, VH1, Comedy Central, Paramount, and elsewhere. He's a philanthropist, an author, and an inspiration. Mario, thank you so much for being with us today on The State thank of you. Belief. Thank you very much. That's all the time we have for the State of Belief this week. Be sure to subscribe to the new and improved podcast called The State of Belief at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform or at stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. Subscribe to The State of Belief today. We need your help keeping The State of Belief going. I hope you consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. 
And if you're getting something out of this show, share it with your friends and family. Let's get more people listening and keep these conversations going when the show is over. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at State of Belief and share State of Belief with the people in your networks. The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Religion News Service or Religion News Foundation. The State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week. We will be talking with the Reverend Jim Martin about gratitude and thanksgiving. I can't wait. Until then, I'm Paul Brandis Reichenbusch on the State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet.